I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the pews. And if you can locate one, Romans 8 is on page 123 in the back half of that Bible. Romans chapter 8 is a great chapter. It begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation, and in between there's no defeat. And some of you have expressed to me your relief that we finally arrived at chapter 8. Because up until this point in Romans, Paul has clearly and fully established two things. Our sin and God's wrath. We are sinners and God hates sin. And so against that backdrop, this first verse kind of jumps off the page. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want to specifically point out to you four key words in this verse. Number one is the word condemnation. Now, this is a word that's used in our modern vernacular to mean being strongly opposed to something or criticizing something. We read in the paper that President Bush condemned the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. That means he criticized it, he opposed it, he spoke out against it. You see, that's not all that Paul means in this word in verse 1. Because he uses the same word again in verse 3, where he says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, notice, he condemned sin in flesh. Now what does it mean when it says God condemned sin in the flesh? Well, we know it doesn't mean just criticizing and calling it wrong because he says that this is something that the law couldn't do. And the law does that quite well. In fact, that's what the law does best, is exposes and opposes sin. But here he says, God condemned sin in the flesh. Now, when did that happen? It happened on the cross. And so if you want to understand this word condemnation, all you have to do is look at what happened on the cross. Not just the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus, but the spiritual suffering as well. And so this word condemnation means not only to point out the wrong, but to find guilty, to sentence, and to execute. Condemnation means the pouring out of the wrath of God against sin. Condemnation means the carrying out of the stiffest sentence possible, eternal punishment. But then I want you to notice the second word, and that's the little word, no. Now, in our English translation, that's a simple negative, but in the original Greek, Paul kind of adds some extra salsa to it. Because in the Greek, the, the, the simplest word for no is the word ou. And Paul uses a stronger word here. It's the word ude, a stronger word for no. And in the Greek language, the order of the words in a sentence are not that important. So when you wanted to emphasize a word, you would put it near the front of the sentence. Guess which word comes first in this Greek sentence? Ude. 
No. You see, Paul is emphasizing the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the third word I want you to notice is that word, therefore. You see, this is not an isolated verse. Paul has been laying out the gospel in the first seven chapters, saying things like this in chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. He said this in verse chapter 4, verse 5, To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. He said in chapter 5 and verse 8, But God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we were ungodly, helpless sinners and God saved us. And it's all based on His power, His love, His work, His sacrifice, His grace. He paid it all Therefore, chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the fourth word I want you to notice is that word, now. Some of us need to underline that word, circle that word, and highlight that word. Because you see, it's easy for me to understand and accept that someday there will be no condemnation when I've been changed when I'm already in heaven. But that's not what Paul says here. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Right here, right now, while I'm still living in this sinful flesh carton, while I'm still living in this sinful world, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, as a Christian, I am not waiting for a future judgment day. The verdict is in. In John chapter 3 and verse 18, Jesus said, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Present tense. The one who believes in Christ is not condemned right now. And that's why Paul can say what he does later in this chapter in verse 34 when we read, Who is the one who condemns? Who shall condemn us? And the answer is, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You see, Christ is the only one who can legitimately condemn you. Because in John chapter 5 and verse 22, it says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. He's the only one who can legitimately condemn you. And what has He done? He has died for you, and He is now interceding for you. The only one who can condemn you is not only not condemning you, He is defending you. You say, but Dan, how can I have no condemnation now? I mean, I haven't even finished all the sin I'm going to commit. I'm I'm still doing the crime. What about the sins I'm going to commit in the future? What about the sins of tomorrow? Well, who gets this promise? He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we saw at the end of verse 3, 
Christ took our condemnation. And so that's a beautiful picture. You are in Christ, and Christ has taken your condemnation. He has suffered the condemnation for your sins, past, present, and future. And so there is no condemnation left for you. No condemnation means no condemnation. You know, when you suffer pain, sickness, difficulty, when a disaster comes into your life, do you ever find yourself saying, this must be God punishing me? When something goes wrong in your life, do you ever find yourself saying, this must be God repaying me for that sin that I did 20 years ago? Well, listen carefully. Whenever you hear that voice, that is the accuser of the brethren whispering in your ears because that's one of his favorite lies. The truth is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no punishment. There is no getting even. You see, as a Christian, if God ever punished you for one single sin that you have committed, then that would mean that you were helping pay for your salvation. And that can't happen. You see, God is not getting even with you. He already got even with you at the cross. Now let me add a footnote. God does discipline you. But there's a big difference between condemnation and discipline. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 32, Paul says, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. God actually disciplines us to keep us from condemnation. You see, discipline means to correct. Condemnation means to compensate. Father's discipline judges condemn. And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 says, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. See, I didn't discipline the kids down the street. But I did discipline my own kids because I love them. And so what Paul wants you to understand in verse 1 is that if you are in Christ, all of God's condemning wrath has been entirely replaced by God's compassionate mercy. And it's not a mixture. It's not as if some days He's against you with wrath and those are your bad days, and some days He's for you in love and those are your good days. No, Christ, if, if you are in Christ, God is always for you. Always. And that's why later in this chapter, in verse 31, He says, if God is for us, who is against us? God is always for you. And so even though I deserve condemnation, in Christ, there is absolutely no condemnation that I will ever experience. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say, well, how can Paul make such a bold statement? Well, he tells us in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 begins with the word for. It's actually a Greek word that means because. He's going to tell us 
why he can make this bold statement. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, some of us get to a verse like this and we say, well, you know, that's a little too deep for me. I'm not really that into theology. I mean, I, I don't follow what Paul's talking about here when he says the law of death, the law of the Spirit. It's a little too complex for me. You know, when I was in Chicago, I used to go down to Cook County Jail and hold Bible studies with the inmates there. And one of the things that stood out to me about those guys was that most of those guys had very little education, but they knew a whole lot more about the details of our legal system than I did. They knew all about court proceedings. They spoke sometimes in legalese that went right over my head. And you know why? Because their life was on the line. Their life and their future was at stake. You see, I guarantee you, if you were on trial in a courtroom for a capital offense and your life was in the balance, you would hang on every word that the judge said. You would care greatly about whether he used words like guilty or not guilty, convicted or acquitted, set free or placed on probation. You see, if you care, you understand. And what Paul is talking about here has to do with your eternal future. And so let me help you with verse 2. The key phrase here is the words, set you free. You have been set free. You are not on probation. You're set free. Now, what are you set free from? Well, he tells us you are set free from the law of sin and of death. Now, what is the law of sin and of death? Well, that's the law. That's the Old Testament law. In chapter 7, Paul was very careful to tell us in verse 7, the law is not sinful. In verse 13, the law doesn't cause my death. He tells us in verse 12, the law is holy and righteous and good, but since I couldn't keep it, it became to me a law of sin and of death. The law showed me my sin, it stirred up my sin, and it found me guilty of sin. And then it didn't show me any leniency. It sentenced me to death. And so that's where I stand under the law but Paul tells me in this verse, I was set free. Now, how was I set free? I was set free from that law by another law. You see, an airplane sits on the ground because of the law of gravity. But if it gets going fast enough and gets up to a certain speed, the law of aerodynamics takes over and it is freed from the law of gravity by the law of aerodynamics. See, Paul is telling us here, you have been set free from one law by another law. And what is it that sets you free from the law of sin and death? Well, it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And what Paul's essentially saying there is it's the gospel. If you go back to chapter 3, notice what he says in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. You see, we are no longer under the principle of works. We are under the principle of faith. 
Then in chapter 7 and verse 6, he says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. I am no longer under the principle of the letter, that code of ethics. I am now under the principle of the Spirit of God. And then here in chapter 8 and verse 2, he says, we're no longer under a principle that brings death. We're under a principle that brings life. Now, why did we need to be freed from the law? We'll look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. See, we had to be delivered from the law because the law couldn't do the job. And what could not the law accomplish? Well, he tells us in verse 2, it's the law of sin and of death. So that tells us what the law couldn't do. The law couldn't free me from sin and therefore bring righteousness. And the law couldn't free me from death and therefore bring life. Now that was its original intention. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, it says, You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. That was the original intention of the law, but the law couldn't be a law of righteousness and life. Why not? He tells us because it was weak. But if you look closely at this verse, it doesn't say really that the law was weak. You see, the law was fine until it had to be carried out by us. It's the flesh that is weak. That's why Paul said back in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh will be declared righteous by God. And so the holy righteous law couldn't make us righteous because we couldn't keep it. And so rather than being a holy and righteous law for us, it became a law of sin and of death. But, Paul says, what the law couldn't do, God did. And how did he do it? by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, pay attention to that phrase. Because Paul doesn't say that Jesus came in sinful flesh. That would make Him a sinner. And He doesn't say that Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. That would make Him a phantom. He says very carefully that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see, Jesus was in flesh. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, the Word became flesh. And even after His resurrection, Jesus said in Luke 24, 39, Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bone as you see ye have. You see, He was flesh, but He was not sinful flesh. He didn't inherit the sinful nature from Adam. That's the whole point of His virgin birth. He had a body just like ours, but without sin. He felt hunger, thirst, pain, weariness, sorrow. He was, as Hebrews 4.15 says, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's why Peter could say of him in 1 Peter 1.19, he's a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now why did God send him? Well, look again at verse 3. He came as an offering for sin. As a sacrifice for sin. To pay the wages of our sin. Remember when the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 
And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. When John the Baptist first saw him, what did he say in John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came as an offering for sin. And then he elaborates on that in the last phrase of verse 3. He says, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. Whose sin? Our sin. You see, he didn't have any. God condemned our sin in Jesus' flesh. 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You see, my sin was condemned almost 2,000 years ago in the body of Jesus Christ. God placed my sin on Jesus and then He brought down all of His condemnation for my sin upon Him. And that's why verse 1 is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, your condemnation has already come. Christ already took it. And so if you are in Christ, judgment day is not a thing of the future. Judgment day is a thing of the past. And then Paul goes on in this passage to show us what God did that the law couldn't. Now there's two things the law couldn't do. The law couldn't bring righteousness and the law couldn't bring life. And so he goes on here to show how God did both of those things. He's going to show us how he produces righteousness rather than sin in verse 4. And then he's going to show us how he produces life rather than death in verses 5 to 11. First of all, he produces righteousness rather than sin. Look at verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now what is the requirement of the law? Well, it's righteousness. The law demands it, but it can't produce it because of the weakness of our flesh. But what the law couldn't do, God did. And he does this two ways. Number one is imputed righteousness. That means righteousness that is deposited into our account. Not only was my sin condemned at the cross, but I have already been declared righteous. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that's one of my favorite verses because it describes the most inequitable transaction in history. God took your sin and he put it on Christ and then he took Christ's righteousness and he put it on you. Do you ever wonder why Jesus came to earth and lived here for a whole 33 years? You know, if Jesus was only going to die, he could have come for a weekend. But he came and he lived for 33 years. 33 years of sinless living. You know one of the reasons he did that? He did that to establish a life of righteousness that God could put to your account. Do you ever think about this? God treated Jesus as if He lived your life 
And God treats you as if you lived Jesus' life. And that's why Paul says in verse 4 that this righteousness is fulfilled in us, not by us. And then there's a second aspect to this righteousness, and that's practical righteousness. You see, the, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us in a practical way. In Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what His answer was? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then He said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Galatians 5.14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Later in Romans 13.8, he says, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So how is the requirement of the law fulfilled in me in a practical way? It's fulfilled when I love my neighbor. But you know what's exciting to me? Even this practical aspect is not done by us. It's done in us. Because where does this love come from? Well, Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. You see, He produces that love inside of us to fulfill the requirement of the law. And that's why Paul adds at the end of verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we don't live our life in our strength. We live His life in His strength. And so the first thing that God did that the law couldn't do was He produces righteousness rather than sin. And then the second thing He does is He produces life rather than death. And that's in verses 5 to 11. And he begins by contrasting the two categories of people in this world. Notice verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now there are two categories of people in this world, and only two. He calls them those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. Those who are according to the flesh, that's unbelievers. For an unbeliever, life consists of the flesh and nothing else. An unbeliever is limited to the physical, the mental, and the emotional part of life. And any meaning that he may find in life is found in the flesh. The Christian is those who are according to the Spirit. The Christian has encountered new life and new power, and new insights, and new goals. The Christian has been made alive to the spiritual realm. And then he goes on to contrast them further. He says these two categories of people have two mindsets. The unbeliever has set his mind on the things of the flesh. Everything that matters is temporal, physical, material. If you evaluate his goals in life, they are... Popularity, prestige, pleasure, power, privilege, prosperity. Believers, on the other hand, have a different mindset. They have set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
God comes into my life by His Spirit and He changes the price tags on things. He gives me a new priority in life. I now want the things that God wants. I now have the capacity, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, to set my mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. And then he draws another contrast, and that is that these two categories of people have two outcomes. Verse 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Unbelievers are living in a condition of death. And what does death mean? It means separation from God. And so they have a life of isolation, loneliness, worry, despair, emptiness. Their life is separated from God. They have a life of death. And ultimately, that life leads to condemnation. In contrast, he says, believers have life. And what is life? It's fellowship with God. We enjoy a relationship with God that leads to no condemnation. And then he makes a further contrast. These two categories of people have two attitudes. Notice verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. What is the attitude of an unbeliever? He says, hostile and rebellious. That's why in chapter 5, verse 10 of Romans, it describes us prior to our salvation as enemies of God. What was I doing before I was saved? I was doing my own thing with an independent spirit, not caring about what God wanted or what God thought. I was hostile and rebellious against Him. But he says, believers, on the other hand, have an attitude of, last word in verse 6, peace. Even though I don't always do it, I want to do what God wants. And even when I fail, I have peace with God. And then there's a final contrast, and that's, that these two categories of people have two capabilities. Notice the end of verse 7. He says, For they are not even able to subject themselves to the law of God. Verse 8, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Unbelievers are not able to submit to God, and they cannot please God. Now, did you get that? An unbeliever, no matter how nice a guy he is, cannot please God. You say, well, surely when a person goes to church and gives money and smiles at babies, God is pleased. No. Why can't an unbeliever please God? Well, because Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You see, an unbeliever can't please God because he doesn't believe God. An unbeliever can't please God because he's rejecting God's Son. An unbeliever can't please God because he's living to please himself. And then in contrast to that, the believer is already described in verse 4 as those who have the requirement of the law fulfilled in us. We are pleasing God by the Spirit of God. And so that's a pretty bleak picture of those according to the flesh. Their mindset is the things of the flesh. Their attitude is hostility to God. Their capability is they can't please God. And their outcome 
is death. But notice what he says in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. See, that whole bleak description in verses 5 to 8 is your past. You are now in the Spirit. And what's the condition for being in the Spirit? He says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. And every Christian has the Spirit of God. Notice what he says at the end of verse 9. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. That's an important statement because there's a popular teaching today that says that you become a Christian and then at some later time you receive the Holy Spirit. That teaching enables us to have Christians who are walking around without the Spirit of God. But what does, this, what does this verse say? This verse says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. See, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit of God. Every Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in him. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, and if Christ is in you, here's what's true about you. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, your body is still dead. And your body is going to continue to decay. And you will eventually physically die. Why? Because of sin. Because of Adam's sin. You were born this way. And your body will deteriorate and die. You have a dead body, but, he says, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. He's talking about your physical human spirit. My body is still dead, but my spirit is alive. You see, I am alive. I am indwelt by the Spirit, and I walk according to the Spirit, but I'm still in this body which hasn't been changed. So I'm a new creature in an old flesh carton. And that's a big part of the problems that we run into. I'm already made new spiritually, but physically, it's still the old me. So I have new life in a dead body. You say, well, that's great, but what about my body? Well, look at verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. Did you get that promise? The promise is that God will one day give life to your mortal body. He will one day raise you from the dead. And there's an implied guarantee there, and that is He's got experience. You see, the same Spirit who is in you is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And so you're in good hands. God did what the law never could. How? By sending His Son who paid for our sins and by sending His Spirit who indwells us, producing righteousness rather than sin and producing life rather than death. We are alive now spiritually. We have the promise that Physically as well, we will be raised from the dead in a future day. And that allows us to live a life with no condemnation. 
You say, well, that sounds great, but how do you qualify for these promises? Well, verse 1 says you have to be in Christ Jesus. And verse 10 says you have to have Christ in you. And that happens at the same moment. He comes into you and you come into Him. And so as we close our service this morning, I would invite you, if you've never done that, to come by faith to Jesus Christ today. To invite Him into your life today so that you can have no condemnation right now. I'm going to have the praise team come and lead us in a chorus in closing. And we're going to sing that chorus again, Knowing You, Jesus, because that's the key. And in this song it says, There is no greater thing. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing, and if you've never placed your life in the hands of Jesus Christ, if you've never committed your life to Him,